Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Stand up for democracy. Support South Africa's hard-won media freedom. It starts with you, leadsa.co.za. We like helping people who've helped themselves. So do our listeners. Entrepreneurs SA on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. With FNB. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. 27 minutes to 10 o'clock. Naked Scientist, good morning to you. How are you today? Hello, Reedy. Very well, thank you. Fantastic. All right, Chris. So if I'm suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, I need not worry because there's light at the end of the tunnel? Yes. Well, for people that may not know what post-traumatic stress disorder is, let me just quickly summarize that when you're um, sort of exposed to a very stressful or scary or harrowing experience, Some people, in fact many people, complain subsequently that they suffer flashbacks. And this is at various points, they'll just suddenly experience visual hallucinations almost or visual recollection of the very traumatic event that they went through and they find it very unpleasant and disturbing, of course. So how do we stop that happening? Well, people have tried various techniques where they'll sit down with people after their scary experience and talk with them about it, but the evidence is this seems to make the situation worse. But now a group of researchers at Oxford University have come up with what they're dubbing a cognitive vaccine, a way to actually prevent your brain from entrenching the visual memories that you found disturbing and therefore stopping them from happening. And the answer, it turns out, is a computer game. But not just any old computer game, it's Tetris. Remember those years of misspent youth tessellating various shapes and making them fit together in a very nice way? Well, that game is what formed the backbone of this particular study. So what this group did, and this is Emily Holmes at Oxford University, and she's got a paper on this in the journal PLOS One this week. She recruited 60 people who were just random volunteers, and she showed them a video which had various gruesome things in it. It's used to tell people about the dangers of drinking and driving. So it's got, you know, injuries, lacerations, dead bodies, that kind of thing in the video. She shows them this. Then she has a sort of 30-minute cooling-off period, and then she divided them into three random groups. One group had to play Tetris for a little while, a second group had to sit quietly, there were the controls, and a third group then had to play another game, which is called Pub Quiz. Now, the difference between the two computer games is Tetris is very visually dominated. You have to arrange shapes on the screen, whereas Pub Quiz is verbally dominated, you have to respond to text and then come up with verbal answers in response to the questions being asked. She then asked those subjects to keep a diary of any flashback events to the video they'd seen for the subsequent seven days. And then, in order to assess whether or not you have to do this intervention immediately after the stressful event, like this first trial, or whether, more realistically, you've got a time period after which you can still intervene. She then repeated the experiment with 75 people, who were a second set of volunteers, and she made them wait four hours after watching the video, and they did exactly the same thing. And the amazing result they got is that the people who played Tetris had half as many flashback events as the people who were the controls, had no intervention, but the people who did the verbal task, the Mm. pub quiz, 
actually had 50% more flashbacks than the controls. Mm. And the reason they argue for this happening is that when the brain stores memory, it tends to divide things into two different categories, verbal memories and visual memories. Mm. And if you therefore do a visual task whilst the brain is trying to consolidate, in other words, move into long-term memory, things that you've been exposed to, and that takes about six hours, the task can interfere with that process and make it less efficient. It's like distraction. And so if you do the verbal test, the visuals end up being consolidated without any problem. But if you do the visual task, the Tetris, it interferes with that consolidation and it can therefore abolish or reduce the risk of getting the post-traumatic stress um, flashback. So they are suggesting that this could be a very effective way, using visual tasks, to cognitively vaccinate people after they've been exposed to something harrowing. Very interesting. Let's talk about Parkinson's. Uh, calcium blocking drugs could halt Parkinson's. What's this about? Well, Parkinson's disease is very common. We think that at least six million people around the world suffer from it. And you can tell when people have Parkinson's because they usually have problems initiating movements. They report that they get very rigid and stiff and they know what they want to do, but getting the movement going can be very difficult. And they can also develop tremors. So for the people who have it, it's very frustrating. Thankfully, there are drugs around which will help the symptoms. But despite many years of research and a better understanding of what actually causes Parkinson's disease, no one has yet come up with a way to prevent or at least arrest the progression of the condition. But that could change because there's a paper which has been published in the journal Nature this week. It's by James Surmeyer and his colleagues. He's at Northwestern University in America. And what this group did was to make a genetically modified mouse in which they made a glowing green protein get switched on in the nerve cells which make dopamine, which are the nerve cells that are affected by Parkinson's disease. But in a clever twist, what they do is that they only make those cells turn on if the cells they're in are stressed. And by studying these mice, what they find is that the cells that make dopamine, which die in Parkinson's disease, even in normal people, are in a state of perpetual near stress. And the way the cells protect themselves from this near stress is that they produce various signals that turn down their metabolism just temporarily and just a little bit every so often. Mm -hmm. And this prevents the cell from becoming damaged. And the thing that makes this oxidative stress and damages the cells is a chemical called calcium, which comes into the cell every time it fires off a nerve impulse. So the researchers reasoned, well, what would happen if we gave these mice that we've made a, a drug that can block calcium channels and stop the calcium getting into the cells? Well, because the calcium isn't needed for the cells to be active, it's just a side effect, blocking it doesn't actually affect the function of the cells, but it did completely abolish this stress response, including in mice which have been genetically modified to make them prone to a, a mouse equivalent of a Parkinson's disease-like syndrome. So this suggests that a class of drugs that we've had for many, many years, which are already licensed and have a safe track record for use in humans, these calcium channel blockers, including one which is called isradapine, they could be used to treat Parkinson's disease in humans. So I think that there's now a new opportunity to start trying to intervene in Parkinson's with these drugs from an early stage to see if we can pre prevent or slow down the progression of the disease. Mm -hmm. And the world will be a better place for that. Let's get the very latest of your calls on 021-446-0567, Any question that hasn't been answered, anything that you're very, very curious about, the Naked Scientist is here to take your calls. We'll also take your SMSs on three. 
011702 and 31567. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. And let's go straight to the lines. Let's go to Lina in Menlin. Hi there. Hi, good day. I really like your show. Thank you. And I wish more young people would listen to it. I mean, young as in 20. Okay, thank um, you. Okay, I've got a question. I've been lasering uh, my legs. I'm, I've got Italian blood, so I've got very aggressive hair growth um, in my legs and my underarms. And um, I just want to know, is lasering bad? And um, if you do laser, um, the, obviously the hair follicles are blocked from scar tissue because it burns that uh, follicle, I think, if I've got it right. And um, when you do that, um, if you're stopping so much of all your aggressive hair growth, like what does your body actually do with all that energy it used to produce all your hair? <laughs> Hello, Lila. Um, to my knowledge, this has been tested and it is safe. You're right that it does effectively remove hair. I'm not sure about for the long, long, long term, though. I don't know if it just stops it for a while. Uh, maybe you can tell me. Um, but it's not like uh, you've got lots of hair building up under the surface and it's eager to get out and can't. Um, I don't think it works like that. Um, the bottom line is that you arrest the growth of the hair and therefore it doesn't consume energy that it would do otherwise for a while. I don't know if the follicle then recovers. I think what actually happens is that the the hair falls out and goes into a sort of resting phase for a while and then when it does regrow later you can you can see the hair coming back but maybe you can tell me if it's permanent or not oh she's gone unfortunately and speaking of laser uh, chris i'm just going to capitalize on that uh why is it that a, a black skin uh, cannot do laser treatment uh, for example you want to save yourself the pain of waxing and, and and so on and laser treatment i'm told doesn't work on black skin well, black skin is, uh, although very good at defending itself against the sun, um, because it has enhanced melanization, you've got much more melanin, which is present in the skin of a black face, and, well, a black body, because that is very good at, def- at defending against ultraviolet, because it soaks up ultraviolet. I think that there's evidence that people who are black-skinned and dark-skinned in general are more likely to heal with a more aggressive scarring response when the skin is injured in some way. So, for instance, I know of people who have uh, black skin and had acne problems, and they found that the pitting they get from acne or the, the spots damage that they get to their skin can be far worse than someone with a fairer skin. And this seems to be in their case because the skin scars or reacts more vigorously to the damage than the fairer skin. This must therefore be some kind of genetic thing. It must be something to do with having a a range of genes which initiate that particular response. But in these individuals, it's obviously a bit deleterious under certain circumstances, but presumably in our ancestry had some kind of benefit um, to those people who originally evolved to have that behavior. I know that's a little bit of a weak answer, but that's the best I can do. (laughs) Okay, so more waxing, more pain. Let's go to Kath in Clementi. Hi, Reedy. Mm. Um, I'm interested in a very, very hot condition that well, uh, my mom had. It's a thing called Fallow's Tetralogy. Mm-hmm. Um, she didn't actually know she had it. She knew she had a hot condition. She was told she had pulmonary atresia. And only after she passed away a few weeks ago did they do a medical autopsy and discovered that she had this condition. And the amazing thing is apparently most people who have it suffer from either brain damage or Down syndrome. And I want to know why she didn't have those conditions because she got a master's degree. She was principal to the Rocker Schools in Joburg. And yet she had a blood oxygen level of about 85%. Okay. Hello, Kath. I'm sorry to hear about that. Um, The tetralogy of fallow is a relatively common heart 
defect, congenitally speaking, and and I say relatively because it's still rare, but but I've actually seen a patient who had that. And just to summarise for people, the reason it's called the tetralogy is there's usually four things wrong. The most common thing that people have, and the most the most pronounced thing, is that they have a gap between the left chamber and the right chamber of the heart. So instead of blood staying on the right side, going around the lungs, coming to the left side of the heart, being pumped out, going around the body, and then back to the right side of the heart, you actually get flow of blood from one chamber of the heart into the other without going around the rest of the body or the lungs properly. And this can overload the pulmonary circulation, and this can cause problems subsequently. And what usually happens is people will, will repair that defect in the what's called the septum, the ventricular septum, that's got this breach in it that allows the blood to go the wrong way. Um, there are associations in embryology. In other words, when someone has one of these congenital things, what doctors and, and people will have done is to tie up other things that often go with those abnormalities. And so they might see this particular problem and they know it's associated with another problem. That doesn't mean that you definitely will have the other problems. It may be that there is some gene which causes the tetralogy of Fallot to occur and then next door to those genes on the same chromosome there might be another gene that does something else and if that particular genomic region is a little bit upset or has got some changes this means you may see these other things occurring as well and they're occurring because their genes are independent of the genes that cause the tetralogy but sit next to them in your genome and so they're also likely to have been damaged at the same time or disrupted and that could be the reason i don't know enough about the subject in order to give you a defined answer as to what the conditions are that your mum had and how linked they are metabolically or biochemically to the tetralogy problem but i hope that goes some way to helping you to understand exactly why she may or may not have had some of the other side effects or consequences mm -hmm. thank you very much kath and uh, very sorry to hear about that let's go to henny in centurion hi Hi, good morning. I just would like to uh, hear if you can answer this question. It's in connection with diesel and petrol. I've heard or read somewhere that the uh, carbon footprint of petrol is less than that of diesel fuel, but that uh, diesel fuel contained more toxic or poisonous gases, especially if it's not you know, very well combust, uh, combust, if the combustion isn't uh, taking place very well. I'll listen on the radio. Thank you very much. That's a very interesting question. Mm. Um, well, the answer is that diesel is much more efficient than petrol. It burns at a lower temperature, and therefore it's converting more of the energy in the fuel into useful kinetic energy rather than wasted heat energy. In other words, what makes your engine get hot without actually making the car go long. And diesel will do... Um, if I take my own car as an example, which is a diesel car now, it, for the equivalent size of car, uh, I'm getting almost twice as many miles to the gallon out of my car as my wife does who has a similar mm -hmm. sized car, which is a petrol car. Mm -hmm. And it's for that reason. Diesel contains a lot longer chain hydrocarbon molecules, which means inevitably it does contain, those those molecules contain a lot of energy, um, which they turn into CO2, and that's how that energy gets liberated. Um, they, that happens at a lower temperature. Petrol contains shorter chains, they're more volatile, they burn at a higher temperature, and therefore petrol has a higher energy output um, in the short term. That's why petrol engines are, are more powerful. They can produce a more powerful surge of energy than a diesel engine, but they're less efficient. Um, in terms of output, Output, CO2 isn't just the one the only thing that comes out of the exhaust uh, as well as CO2 you get water because you're burning a hydrocarbon and when you burn a hydrocarbon a molecule made of carbon and hydrogen you get carbon dioxide and 
water, H2O. But in addition to that, you can also get partially burned hydrocarbons. Because petrol's running at a higher temperature and the molecules are smaller, petrol tends to go to completion. It burns more cleanly than diesel does. And also you can add catalytic converters to a petrol engine which will pull out some of the other trace elements such as the hydrogen sulfide and, uh, sorry, the sulfur dioxide and so on and the nitrogen oxides. With diesel, the lower temperature and the fact that the chains of hydrocarbons are longer to start with and the fuel is heavier mean that it can fail to go to complete combustion and you can get particulates produced which are components of the fuel which are not quite reduced to carbon dioxide and water. So you'll get short chain hydrocarbons and other nano and microparticles. And these have been shown to be particularly irritant to the lung. They've also been shown to have impacts on the structure and, and uh, stability of the human circulation. There was a study that was done in America a few years ago and they took some rats that were uh, equivalent to elderly people on a road trip. They put them in a lorry and they exposed them to the same air that the people who are wandering around in New York would be breathing in. And they measured these rats' ability to control their blood pressure, heart rate and circulation after their trip and found that it was significantly dysregulated. And researchers have also found that exposure to the kinds of particulates that come out of fuels, including diesel, but both petrol and diesel, but diesel makes a lot more of them, they also tend to cause inflammation. They make macrophages in the lungs, make a lot more um, interleukin-6, which is one of the inflammatory cytokines that winds up the immune system and provokes allergy and wheeze and that kind of thing. So this also explains why people get respiratory problems um, in the wake of having been exposed to pollution. And when you have bad pollution days, when there's lots of heavy traffic, very bright sunlight, lots of smog and that kind of thing, and not enough wind to blow it all away, that's why you tend to get an increase in deaths. You get an excess mortality at that time in the humans. And that's because these particles also appear to make blood stickier as well, although researchers don't exactly know why. So the bottom line is that there's no easy solution because petrol might make fewer of these things, but actually you have to burn more of it to go the same distance. Diesel mm -hmm. makes more of these things, but it is more efficient. As long as you make it burn cleanly, it's a good fuel. But if you don't make it burn cleanly and don't maintain the engine, you'll get more of these nasty things that could make you ill. Mm. Uh, is it Musa in Crave Hall? Hi. Yes. Hi, Ravi. Hi, Chris. Mm. I just want to find out from Chris um, what role kidneys play in the growth of a human being. The reason I'm asking is because I know of a nine-year-old boy who is as tall as a three-year-old, and he apparently cannot grow. Uh, because there's a problem with his kidneys. They realized that, I think, a year after he was born. Okay. Kidneys and growth? Um, also, um, well, that's a very hard question, because we don't know what the, the problem is with the kidneys. But kidneys are absolutely critical for healthy life. And if your kidneys aren't working, this is a fatal condition, unless you give some kind of renal replacement therapy, in other words, things like dialysis. The kidneys filter blood and they remove from the blood waste products, excess sodium, excess water, and they therefore clean the blood, but they also therefore help you to lose excess water from the body. And if you don't have enough kidney function, then water and salt can accumulate in the body and you get swelling in your tissues. But if you have chronic renal failure, the kidneys aren't working properly, this makes a person not very well. And if people aren't well, especially young children, they don't grow properly. And you just have to look at individuals that have had chronic infections in childhood or other chronic health problems, and they generally are smaller than individuals that are healthy and well-fed. And so I would suspect that in, in order to maintain the health of the individual with the kidney problem, it may be that he's having to eat a certain diet that might be protein deficient. Um, he may also just have chronic renal failure that's not being adequately managed. And this means that he's not growing properly 
because of ill health. So I think both of those are possible. All right, and uh, there was an SMS here asking Chris uh, whether washing your hands with soap, does it kill the bacteria or remove the bacteria? Very good question. What we know about this one is that soap, whilst it it isn't necessarily an antiseptic, it doesn't necessarily bust apart all bacteria because some bacteria are pretty resilient and they have a tough capsule around them that protects them. And although soap can break open some membranes, it doesn't break open the membranes of all bacteria. Nonetheless, what the soap does is it encourages physical abrasion between skin surfaces because you rub your hands and fingers together when you're using the soap. It therefore helps to detach the bacteria under a running stream of water and wash them away. The other thing it does is it removes oils and greases and dead skin cells to which those bacteria may be clinging on the skin and it therefore reduces food for the bacteria, the stickiness uh, on the surface and things the bacteria could also eat. It reduces bacteria directly and it means that the skin is therefore less easy for the next set of bacteria to colonise in the meantime. All this translates into a lower carriage of bacteria temporarily. Obviously, if you leave your hands for a little while, the bacterial levels will accumulate again. But this scrubbing is very good at getting rid of, of bacteria and viruses and things like norovirus, which is the commonest cause of D and V in adults and kids. Um, that, that virus, although is, it's insensitive to things like alcohol hand rubs, is very well, well removed by soap and water just because of physical detachment. All right, well, keep washing your hands then. Chris, have a lovely, lovely weekend. Thanks indeed for always sharing these amazing, amazing answers and information with us. Thank you. Thanks, Hamid Reedy. See you next week. Bye-bye, bye-bye. And, of course, that conversation with Chris is available as a podcast. I'm always so sad at this time because there's so many people still holding on, still calling, uh, wanting to ask uh, the Naked Scientist some questions. We'll see if we can accommodate you next week. Thank you. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.